KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Welcome to a special bonus holiday edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Traditionally, Christmas is the biggest day at the box office for Hollywood. Plus, the studios tend to hold all their big Oscar hopeful films for the end of the year. So for this special bonus holiday edition of Cinema Junkie, I decided to invite MovieWalla's Yazdi Pathavala. We decided to head out to cinemas to shop for the best movies to unwrap this holiday weekend. So welcome, Yazdi. Thank you, Beth. Okay, so our main purpose in doing this show is that we wanted to make sure you did not end up with a lump of coal under your tree or in your stocking this holiday season. So we've put together a cinematic shopping list. And let's start by pointing out those lumps of coal that you might want to avoid so they don't ruin your holiday season. Now, Yazdi, you tend to be a much more positive person than I am. So do you actually have any lumps of coal that you want to point out to people so that they don't go see those movies this holiday weekend? I don't have an absolutely ghastly film, but I, <laughs> I did watch I did watch a lot of films this year from directors who I respect a lot, who made films which were pretty disappointing. And top of my list is Taika Waititi's Next Call Wins, which I think really doesn't do anything new to the sports movie genre. So it was a big disappointment. All right. As we all know, I am far more curmudgeonly than you are. And I have a few lumps of coal on my list. I would say Michael Mann's Ferrari, even though I love Michael Mann. Rebel Moon, which is Zack Snyder's take on Star Wars, but if you suck out all the joy. <laughs> and Wonka. Now, Wonka is a very bright and energetic lump of coal, and you would probably disagree with me on that one. I was in the same place that you were, but then the film very, very grudgingly won me over, mostly because it's made by those who made the two Paddington movies, which I absolutely adore. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now on to our holiday treats. We both feel that movies are best appreciated in a cinema and with an audience. So let's begin with some films that people can actually go out to see in the theater on the big screen. And let's start at the top with Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. And this is sort of a reimagining of the Frankenstein story. And here's the trailer. No! She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. So this film is at the top of both of our lists. What is it about the film in particular that appealed to you? We've all watched a lot of films this year, Beth, and maybe in my old age I'm getting a little impatient with movies that play too safe, movies that are in a particular mold and just follow the beaten track. And so when a movie comes along which is really not playing it safe, which is breaking every rule, I embrace it, and such was the case with Poor Things. This particular director, Yorgos Lanthimos, we've seen him make some pretty remarkable movies, but the one aspect that I had not seen in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie before was this visual dazzle, which, you know, please, Hollywood, give him more money, because <laughs> if this is what he can do visually, if he's given more finances, all power to him, this is just candy for the eyes. Well, I have to confess that this was one of the first films I watched when I was preparing for my voting for critics groups. 
And after seeing this, everything else paled by comparison. This was just so impressive and so fresh and so original. I mean, that's the thing that I love is a film that takes you someplace completely new artistically or narratively. One of the things I like about this director is that, and this is something that has hooked me from the beginning, from Dogtooth, which was about a father who keeps his children, adult children, locked up and away from the world. But what I love about his films is that he never tries to comfort or accommodate the audience. He drops us into a world that he's created and just lets us put the pieces together. We have to figure out in The Lobster that humans are reincarnated as animals. You know, in this film, it's a scientist who has kind of created or reanimated uh, someone from the dead. And we have to start putting the pieces together. And so he creates these worlds and sets us adrift. And it's just such a wonderful feeling to go on this journey of discovery with him. Yeah, the great thing about Lanthimos is that he never, ever panders to the audience. Mm -hmm. He does not tell you how you should be feeling or what you should be thinking. And like you said, Beth, in each of his movies, he creates this unusual, unseen world with its own set of rules. But then that movie very rigorously sticks by those rules, as absurd as they might seem. And the other thing which I really liked about this film compared to his earlier work is that this is a director who has a lot of contempt for humankind as a whole. So there's a lot of cruelty that would kind of seep into his scripts. But his last movie, The Favourite, with Olivia Colman, and this one is from an adapted screenplay written by someone else. And so that allows him to kind of be a little bit more, let's say enthusiastic about the state of humanity. A little lighter. A little lighter. And there is humor, and there is actually laugh out loud humor and not just bleak, dark humor. You know, there's a little uh, scene in the movie where they're all at a dance party and they're all <laughs> dancing. And it, it, that, 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 that little scene is like the best depiction of joy of any movie I've seen this year. And that's saying something coming from this director. And so one of the things about this film, too, is it reminded me a little bit of Jeff Bridges in Starman. This is kind of a, a take on Frankenstein. Like Jeff Bridges in Starman, Emma Stone's character is kind of like coming to this world fresh and trying to figure out how to be human, how to behave in the proper way, or how to even understand what the world is like. And a bit like Candide, she feels a bit like an innocent because it feels like she's freshly born into this world, knowing nothing and discovering the good, the bad, the enjoyable, the horrific. And we're along on that journey. And it is a film that is just so visually spectacular and enticing. And it was a joy to watch. And this is probably the happiest of his films. By, by a mile. I love that this movie, if it is nothing else... It's really the arc of this character, Bella Baxter, mm -hmm. played by Emma Stone, where she starts from being a child, like creature who can't even walk or talk, mm -hmm. all the way through her reacting with the world, reacting to everybody wanting things from her or taking things from her and her kind of asserting herself deterministically, asserting herself sexually, asserting herself as somebody interacting with other people in the world. And so... The whole movie is this arc and it sits on Emma Stone's shoulder and she's very, very 
willing and able. And I, I think one of the other things about this movie is, you know, now that Lanthimos is pretty mainstream with all those Oscar nominations that his last movie, The Favourite, got, he's able to reel in some pretty big name actors. And in this movie, they all jump off the cliff with him gleefully and uh, to, to very, very good results. Uh, I also like the fact that this movie is so frank and so open about sexuality. I'm just tired that we've become so puritanical that we would rather watch 100 heads blow up, but God forbid somebody's naked, you know, for a long period of time in, in a film script. And this movie kind of corrects all of that. So all power to it. And it allows people to enjoy sex, which is something that they don't often do in movies. Imagine that, <laughs> yes. So this is a big, bold, audacious film that commands attention, but equally good, but at the opposite end of the stylistic spectrum is Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster. So like all his films, it has a quiet, delicate sense of craft. His films often seem deceptively simple. The emotional impact often creeps up on you in unexpected ways. Essentially, this film tackles the idea of monsters in the sense of how we throw that word around to describe people. Some people have described this as kind of a Rashomon-like story because it's told in three parts, each kind of from a different point of view. But while Rashomon was kind of giving us three conflicting points of view where we had to choose who was telling the truth, this is about how all this information needs to be taken together to form a true bigger picture of what's going on. So I know you love Koryida's work, and this film is one of his best. What was about this one that you liked, and, and did you see it as kind of following in line with his other films, or did it diverge in any way? I should say that I adore this filmmaker, and I pray at the church of Hirokazu Koryida. All of his movies are just so humane and kind and simple, and you realize in retrospect, you know, how much thought has gone into it. I also love that... All of his film scripts never have an easy villain that mm -hmm. creates the conflict. There are no bad people in his movies. There are just people in bad situations who are reacting a particular way. And be it Choplifters or be it Like Father, Like Son, any one of his movies, that kind of thread continues on in this movie as well. So his his deep regard for human beings, no matter how quick we may be to judge them, continues in this movie. But I've never seen him do this this thing with perspective where depending on a certain set of facts that you are first exposed to, you can't help but judge the characters a particular way. And then as more and more becomes known to you, your perspective changes. It kind of reminded me of the movie A Separation, which won the Best Foreign Film Oscar about 10 years ago. So I, I really like what he's doing with asking the audience and kind of holding them complicit in terms of how they are judging the characters as the movie is going on. Well, I love how it plays. There's a mother and son that open the film with their perspective. And we are so quick mm -hmm. to be on this mother's side because he's playing into certain tropes and then he twists them to show us how easily we can be fooled by something that we see or just a piece of information that we have. And I think he's one of the most infinitely compassionate and empathetic filmmakers. And he really has this sense of loving humanity for all their flaws and fallibility and vulnerability. And it's wonderful. And as in a lot of his films, children 
play a key role in this. And this one, there are two wonderful characters and wonderful performances. If you look at the filmography of Koreeda, you will see that almost all of his movies have pretty big parts for children. And you will never see the precocious, disnified, all-knowing, bratty child that we see in Hollywood movies. All of his child actors are remarkably natural. And I, for the life of me, I don't know how he's able to kind of extract those performances from them. Yeah, it's it's quite something. And at a time when society feels so divisive, I really feel like this film is asking us to be less judgmental, to just try to consider more points of view, more perspectives, and to consider why people may be acting the way they do. Our third film is also by a foreign director. This is J.A. Bayona. And I will confess, he's done some dubious work in Hollywood, having done Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. But he returns to his homeland of Spain to deliver the Society of the Snow. And this deals with a real incident, the 1972 plane crash that was carrying the Uruguay rugby team. The plane crashed in a remote, snowy mountain area of the Andes. And it would take the rescuers 72 days to find the plane. So during this time, the 33 survivors had to deal with exposure, hypothermia, avalanches, starvation, until only 16 remained. Now, the part of the story that often gets sensationalized was that in order to survive more than two months, the people had to consume the bodies of those who had died. So this has been the basis for other movies. Most exploitatively, it was made in 1976 as Survive. And just listen to this trailer. Survive, the most shocking true story of human endurance ever filmed. Caution, the recreation of the plane crash and the survival scenes may be too intense for young teenagers. So... Bayona takes this to a completely different place and different level, and he delivers an unexpectedly poetic and uplifting film. It's not what you would expect. And he does this by putting the story into a bigger context. He shows us the team before the crash and how the camaraderie on the field eventually translated to survival skills in the Andes. So what did you think of this film? I really liked it. I liked it. Because it's not what I expected. This particular filmmaker, and he'd made the Spanish language horror movie, uh, The Orphanage, mm -hmm. a while ago, which is amazing. And then I think his first movie in Hollywood was the movie The Impossible, which was about this family trying to get together after the horrible tsunami in 2004. And I remember watching that movie at the Toronto Film Festival in this huge cavernous auditorium with 2,000 people and watching all of us react to what was happening on screen as these people were trying to survive this horrific natural disaster. This filmmaker really has a way for depicting that. And here again, he's pushing himself to a story which even more... Uh, reaches out to the boundaries of how much you can push human survival. And there is something very epic about this. The cannibalism part of this movie is actually perhaps the least interesting part of it. And he finds the time to comment on things such as consent and so forth associated with this. But I really like the movie because it doesn't fall back into that cliche of Lord of the Flies, where if you take a group of people and put them in a place where they're detached from society that they're all going to turn on each other. I think this story is amazing. This real story is amazing because people did not turn on each other. They kind of worked together and they recognized, even if some of them might be dying, that they should work together to keep those who are alive to be able to survive even longer. So I'm not going to lie. This is a wrenching 
punishing watch of a movie because it's very very hard to watch but ultimately ironically it's it's actually very hopeful because it tells you of how you know you can make the ultimate sacrifice when everything else is gone that the only thing you can do is hope that if you yourself do not come out of this alive that others with you do so it's oddly apt for the holiday season talking about how difficult it is to watch i will say that the plane crash itself is depicted in a way that i don't think i've ever seen in another film in terms of conveying that visceral sense of what it must have been like and what i think is brilliant about how it's done is it really puts you in their place and it's so jolting that from that moment on you kind of understand how separated they are from the rest of the world <laughs> he also does a great job of creating this ensemble of characters where you do feel this sense of teamwork and of love for each other and when consent is given like look i know i'm not going to make it but if my death can allow you to move on and to live don't hesitate and that aspect of it was brought up at the museum of us in their cannibal exhibit where there's actually a section devoted to thinking about other kind of perspectives talking about perspectives again other perspectives on you know what that can mean and you mentioned that this is a good Christmas film, and it is indeed because ultimately they were rescued on December 23rd, 1972, and this has been referred to as the Miracle of the Andes. So all three of these films will be in cinemas this holiday weekend, and if you're in need of a stocking stuffer for home viewing, we also have two quick recommendations for The Holdovers and Saltburn. Now, The Holdovers, like the Society of the Snow is a great sense of ensemble. It's from filmmaker Alexander Payne and one of his favorite actors, Paul Giamatti. Now, there's nothing new or flashy in this film, and yet it is such a delight to watch. So what was it about this film that you liked? It's no secret, Beth. In the first 10 minutes of the movie, you will know exactly how it's going to end. And yet you enjoy how the movie takes you unexpectedly through those expected pathways. I love that there is no sentimentality here. There is no, uh, nobody screaming and shouting for the most mm -hmm. part. There's something so well-oiled and well-crafted about this whole movie that you come away with a smile on your face. You know, we talked about lump of coal, you know, earlier. And this is the exact opposite of that. This is like a warm blanket around you as you're sitting in front of the fire over the holidays. This movie just made me feel so good and remarkable acting. And I should say one other thing which I particularly appreciate about The Holdovers is that unlike most films, this movie really understands grief and it understands how that might play out. Uh, it does not sensationalize it in any way, but really plays it out in a very meaningful way, in a very heartfelt way. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I had you guys stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? 
You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. Well, one of the things that really appealed to me about the film, and that was from the very start, was the trailer had a very 70s vibe to it, from the studio logo to the image quality, even to the font they used. And the film itself has a very 70s sensibility to it. There's this emphasis on great script and great actors and just letting it be about character. It just reminds me of films like Harry and Tano or The King of Marvin Gardens, Fat City, these movies where there was a real emphasis and focus on character and script writing and craft and just letting it flow out in this very kind of natural sense. Now, there's nothing showbody or flashy about The Holdovers. It has a very naturalistic vibe. Saltburn, on the other hand, is almost gaudy. It has this kind of hyper-realism to it, but there's a reason for it. My parents, they've got problems. What kind of, what do you mean problems? I don't think I'll ever go home again. Well, why don't you come home with me? Come to Saltburn. I had them hang up an old school dinner jacket. We dressed for dinner here. Dressed for dinner? Yeah, it's like, it's like black tie. This film looks at class structure and wages a kind of battle between the rich and the poor. So this is Emerald Fennell's second film after Promising Young Woman. Now, both of us felt a little disappointed at how that film ended. But Saltburn is really a much better sustained film with a much stronger ending. Yeah, absolutely. I think Emerald Fennell really sticks the landing with this one when she did not at least according to the both of us, uh, <laughs> uh, with Promising Young Woman. You know, we started off with uh, talking about poor things, and I said that was not a safe film. I think this one is not a safe film either, and I love it for it, because it is made to deliberately make you squirm in your seat. And yet, at the same time, it is very comical, it is exaggerated. And I did not know where this movie was taking me to, and it had a bit of a you know, surprise up its sleeve. So as much of a maximalist as this director is, I think for this particular script, that that really is the right treatment for that material. I loved how gleefully it wants to make everybody uncomfortable while watching it. <laughs> well, and I think we also take delight in certain rich versus poor mm -hmm. narratives. And I think she has a great sense of revenge and of kind of poking the beast in a way and you know creating characters who want to challenge certain status quo and give us a certain level of satisfaction I think that was the problem for me with Promising Young Woman is that we get a certain amount of satisfaction in the beginning with how smart the character is and in this film it's almost kind of the flip is that we don't think the character is as smart as he turns out to be. And there's a twist in this film that I think works much better. So these are the films that we would put on our shopping list for this holiday season. So I hope this helps you sort through with what's out there, helps you avoid the lumps of coal and pull out the treasured gifts and gems that you want to unwrap. So Yazdi, thank you very much for helping us with the uh, holiday viewing. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Happy holidays. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend, because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
PBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.